Good morning. My name is Stephanie Hill, and I have the privilege of reading this morning's scripture. Today we turn our focus to the Gospel of Luke and discover the incarnation to what the incarnation teaches us about the coming of our promised King, Jesus Christ, who is real and different, and what our response is to this coming in our lives. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, or look up on the screens as I read the passage aloud. Hear the word of our Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to, the, to your word. And the angel departed her. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Stephanie. I didn't include that part on the paper, so kind of hung you out there. I'm grateful to you for reading the scripture this morning. And I'm really thrilled to be with you all this morning. My gratitude to Mitchell and to Bob for giving me this opportunity to preach. Before we begin, let's pray. Let's pray. O come, O come, Emmanuel, make known your presence with us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, with the first Sunday of Advent, we enter a brand new church year. We mark the seasons by the traditional colors in the sanctuary and throughout the church, and maybe in your house, maybe on your front door, is a little bit of purple. Now, it can also be blue, but I don't know about you, but I prefer purple for Advent. The church here, focusing on the life of Christ, his teachings, his ministry, his resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Today is the first Sunday of the new church year, Advent. Welcome to Advent. 
Of all the liturgical seasons of the church year, Advent seems sort of small compared to the other seasons. If you want um, a reason why I think that, try going to your local uh, CVS to the card section and see how many Advent cards you can find. Hallmark doesn't think it's worth recognizing. I'm also thinking of a trip I made to, uh, uh, to Home Depot out around Brook Hollow in 281, Bitters, off of Bitters Road. I went in to that Home Depot in October. It was about middle of October to pick up something. I don't know what it was. And I walked in, and this older gentleman greeted me at the door, big smile, and said, welcome to Home Depot. And I turned to the left, and I saw Christmas was already all decked out. And I turned and looked at him, and I said, wow. And he goes, that's kind of silly, isn't it? And I said, well, do you think they skipped something? He goes, yeah, they skipped Advent. Yes, Advent does seem sort of small compared to the liturgical seasons, but Advent does a great thing for us. Advent introduces us to the incarnation. God's choosing to become one of us and helps us to prepare to receive that gospel message and to respond to it. Advent means coming, the coming of our promised King Jesus Christ and his way of joy. In our scripture lesson from the Gospel of Luke that Stephanie read, we observe there is a messenger, the angel Gabriel, who speaks to Mary three times. And Mary responds three times. So what is the message? God who is called the Most High. Notice in the scripture passage, maybe it's still in front of you, it occurs two times in the scripture lesson, has become the most low in Jesus. God has become a real and different human being in Jesus. That's what we call the incarnation. Well, what, it, what does this mean? Well, first, the incarnation teaches us that God is far greater and more real and different than we know. He will be great, Luke writes in verse 32. God left the riches of his high throne in heaven and came down low and became human in a little baby. Why a baby? Why a stable? Why such awful conditions? What religion can you think of, apart from ours, that has the audacity to clothe, to dress, to incarnate the appearing of its God in the tiny flesh and swaddling cloths of a baby? How vulnerable of God, how accommodating of God, how demanding of God. God the Most High became the most low in a baby. That baby Jesus was born of a, of a woman, flesh and blood of his mother Mary. He was a helpless baby who had to be fed. His diapers had to be changed, and he grew up and developed just like us. Jesus was 100% human being just like you and I. But how is Jesus real? Well, when we read the gospel stories in the New Testament, we learn that growing up as a Jewish boy, Jesus knew what it was like to be laughed at, to be joked about, to be excluded and persecuted. Jesus also experienced all our human needs and limitations. He grew up knowing what it's like to be hungry and thirsty, what it's like to need some sleep, 
what it's like to be afraid, alone, abandoned, to feel pain and suffering and grief and ultimately experience death on the cross. Jesus was 100% human being just like you and I, but how was Jesus different? Hebrew chapter 4 verse 5 reminds us that Jesus was tempted as we are. Jesus experienced the same doubts, the same fears, stresses, and pressures we all experience in life. However, Jesus was different than us because he was without sin. That is, he lived a perfect life, loving God and loving other people. In other words, Jesus loves sinners just like you and I. He loves to hang out with us. So did God know what God was doing when God entered the world as a little baby and became a stable king? Absolutely. Listen to what Ray Stedman writes. Now, you would think that if God, who is great, so rules the world as to use an empire-wide census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, he surely could have seen to it that a room was available in the inn. Yes, he could have. Jesus could have been born into a wealthy family. He could have turned stone into bread in the wilderness. He could have called 10,000 angels to his aid in Gethsemane. He could have come down from that cross and saved himself. The question is not what God could do, but what he willed to do. God's will was that Christ be born as a baby. That though Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that we might become rich in him. When Jesus was born, he was real and different. The most high became the most low. The greater became the lesser for our sake. What makes God great is that God, the most high, became the most low in Jesus. And if God is truly great, then that makes complete sense. The incarnation teaches us teaches us that God is far greater and more real and different than we know. Second, the incarnation teaches us, also teaches us, that we are more sinful than we know. Well, how does it do that? Well, one sin that I know always gets in the way on our, our way on our Christian journey in a big way and prevents us forever, from ever knowing how sinful we really are, it makes us blind and deaf, is pride. Pride, it's a big one. Someone has pointed out that pride comes early and it stays late. Martin Luther once said that pride is the last and deepest vice. Pride manifests itself in our life in at least two ways. One way is through self-exaltation. In the Old Testament, there are at least six words that contain the idea of pride and all share the same range of meaning, to be lifted up, to be high. And do not some of us use this descriptive phrase, proud as a peacock? Hmm? And certainly we can see this prideful peacock strutting around in the farmyard, arrogantly flaunting its colorful tail feathers. Pride struts proudly in every area of our lives. A couple of examples. Even in religion, we see pride. Let me correct that. Particularly in religion, we see the ugly face of pride. We also see pride show up in marriage relationships. Yes, a husband and a wife, perhaps both high and exalted, sitting on the individual thrones, too proud to apologize. 
The three most difficult words in the English language. I was wrong. Do you know the four most difficult words in the English language? I was wrong, dear. <laughs> Pride manifests itself in self-exaltation. Secondly, we see the manifestation of pride and self-importance. Think about this with me for a little bit. It is the sin of pride when we consider ourselves indispensable. If we allow ourselves to think that the world is on our shoulders, that the world cannot turn without our help, we can, in the end, make ourselves unable to do the things in which we are really and truly indispensable. For example... A parent can get so tied up and caught up in outside commitments that he or she can lose touch with their spouse and with their own children. It's not a bad thing to learn that the world can get along quite well without us, that however important we think we are, we're not indispensable to everything. Perhaps the ultimate of pride in the deadly sense is when we refuse to accept God's gift to us, the grace of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Through the incarnation, we meet the one of whom it is said, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Through the incarnation, pride is given a death blow when we dare to say we need the love of Jesus Christ. Even if it means when we receive this gift, we have to admit something about ourselves that we really and truly are that bad off. It's not something we deserve or earn, but the love of God in that little baby is something and someone we all desperately need. The incarnation teaches us about God who is greater and more real and different than we know, that you and I are more sinful than we know, and that God gave us the gift of Jesus, the Son of God, God's promised King who loves us more than we will ever know. Follow me in your Bibles in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 31. The messenger uh, tells Mary that she shall name this baby Jesus. Now, what does the name Jesus mean? Jesus means Savior. Jesus saves. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, the messenger also tells Mary that Jesus will be called Son of the Most High. Now, I've already gone over this. We know that's just another title for God, but look in verse 35. It demonstrates this fact clearly when the messenger tells Mary the child to be born will, will be called Holy, the Son of God. In the second part, look a little further in verse 32. The messenger tells Mary, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. What this verse means is that the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised king of Israel, and Jesus, the promised king, comes from the lineage of King David. These words give fulfillment to the prophecy to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. The prophet Nathan said to King David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That unconditional covenant made to King David 
from God through the prophet Nathan does not place any conditions of obedience upon King David or Israel. The guarantee of that promise is solely on the shoulders of God and his faithfulness. God's promise that King David's son Solomon will build a temple turns into something different. The promise of an everlasting kingdom and the promised King Jesus Christ would rule his kingdom forever and ever and build an eternal home for us all. There's another gospel lesson that I I like to hear about this time of the year. It's in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The promised King Jesus is the Word, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who shares the the divine nature with God and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the eternal Son through whom all things were created and who rules over and sustains all of life. He is, as we have sung, our Emmanuel, God with us, 100% divine. That means Jesus has two natures. He is 100% human and 100% divine, both at the same time. He is our promised king who has come to save us from our sins. So what does King Jesus get from all his redemptive work on the cross to save us? What does he get? He gets you and I. He gets us. We belong to him. The incarnation shows us how much Jesus, our promised king, loves us more than we know. A question I like to ask couples who come to me for premarital work is how do you define the word commitment? And I actually assign this as homework. And so they take it home and We meet a week later, two weeks later. I never forget the homework, and I bring it back up to him, and I ask the question, so how did you discuss how you define commitment? Well, each couple defines commitment in their own unique way, and we talk about the varied answers for a little while, but ultimately, we land on one agreed definition. Commitment means to love one another with, with Christ's love no matter what. Because a husband and wife both need Christ's love. That kind of love that never gives up and loves no matter what. And so does everyone else in this room. So does everyone else in this city. And so does everyone else in this world. The incarnation teaches us about God's greatness. That God is greater and more real and different than we will know. That you and I are more sinful than we know and that God gave us the gift of Jesus, the Son of God, God's promised King, who loves us more than we know. Now, there's only one person who has faithfully responded to our our sinful lives and can respond to you and I today. His name, the promised King Jesus Christ. So what is your response to the promised King Jesus? Well, maybe looking at Mary's response for a little bit might help. 
So Mary was confronted by the angel Gabriel, and there was this announcement that she, a virgin, would become pregnant, which in and of itself would cause enough for incredible personal and emotional trauma. Add to that cause for Joseph to completely break off the engagement and cause for Mary to be ostracized from her friends, if not absolutely stoned to death. Well, it was an a sobering moment in Mary's life. It surely would have driven Mary to complete emotional and physical collapse. But if we look deeper, I think we discover something about Mary's personality and her faith that reflects an ability to receive such great privilege and responsibility. Mary, you see, was prepared for her role. Mary was a godly woman, certainly prepared in the sense that her moral life was above reproach, but the depth of her preparation went far beyond moral purity, important as it is. She was prepared in the sense that she had been immersed in the richness and truth of the word of God. Look in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55 her spontaneous song of praise, and you will discover there are more than a dozen phrases from the Old Testament woven in with her rejoicing. Mary was also prepared for the environment she grew in. Mary came from a poor family. It's a hard life around here. This is something Mary would say. She had been prepared already for less than desirable living conditions, for a hard, rough life, perhaps not quite prepared for a birth in a stable, but close to that, I'm sure. Mary was prepared for her role. Do you realize that you're being prepared as God's woman and God's man and God's child now? God's people like Mary and you and I are often prepared in God's school of hard knocks. Gabriel, the angel, said Mary was the favored one. The word favor literally means in the Greek one in which a gift has been bestowed or given. The root word is the Greek word for grace. Ultimately, it is grace that determines the favor of God in our lives. One of my favorite theological dictionaries defines grace in this way. Grace is something you can never get but can only be given. In other words, there's no way you can earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of peaches and cream or earn your good looks or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is grace. So are good dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Have you smelled that rain lately? Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. Mary is favored. God's favor, his grace, made Mary great, not Mary. Like any other gift, the gift of grace and the promise came Jesus can be yours only if you reach out and take it. Mary, the chosen one, she chose to take that gift. 
Mary submitted to God's grace and accepted God's incarnation work in her life. God freed Mary, and she recognized this was God's work in her life, and she is his servant. Behold, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me. Let it be to me according to your word. She knew God deserves all the grace, all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory. Not only was Mary prepared by God for her role as his servant, she was also supported by God. The Lord is with you, the angel announced to Mary in our scripture lesson. Mary knew she wasn't alone. What does it mean to be chosen, to be prepared, to be supported by the promised King Jesus Christ? It means that you are not alone. With your doubts, your pain, your promise, the promised King who is real and different and who reigns and rules over us with all power and authority is always with you. The promised King Jesus invites you to bring all the darkness of your doubts, your pain, your, prob- your problems, and, cr- and your confu- confusion to him with him in prayer. The promised King Jesus invites you to open your heart and hope in him and believe he can do the impossible in your life. The promised King Jesus invites you to let the light of his love inside. Now understand this about King Jesus. He does not always take away the hurts. No. But he is with you in them. And uses them for his glory and transforms them into joy as he did with Mary. Look in Luke 1, 46 through 45, the song of praise. Mary went to knock on Elizabeth's door, and it began there. She realized she had been given a gift. She was full of joy. So like Mary, say, yes, my king. Like Mary, say, behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Like Mary, reach out and receive the gift of the promised King Jesus this Advent season, starting today, and discover his way to joy. Let us pray. King Jesus, we thank you that you chose to come to us in the vulnerability and the, the weakness of a little baby to demonstrate your power and love as our king in our lives. Thank you for living our lives for us, for experiencing, for feeling everything that we experience and feel as human beings. But most of all, King Jesus, for living and dying for us on the cross, and rising from the grave. Lord, we bring to you the darkness of our lives. We lay it before you. We ask, Lord, 
that you're always with us and that you comfort us and love us more than we will ever know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.